Thank you for listening to our Spectator podcast. Before you start, I'm happy to announce that we have a new Spectator Christmas subscription offer over the festive period. Subscribe to the Spectator for yourself or for a loved one this Christmas, and you'll receive a copy of the magazine and full online access for £99 for one year. That's £50 off the normal rate. Plus, you'll receive a free bottle of Paul for your troubles. To access the offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash champagne. Hello and welcome to The Edition, the Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. In this episode of The Edition at Christmas, I speak to editor of Spectator USA, Freddie Gray, and president of Harper's Magazine, John Rick MacArthur, about the year in American politics. At the start of 2019, Trump was locked in a fight with the Democrats over the funding for his wall, leading to a weeks-long government shutdown. As Trump faces impeachment this week, how much has changed this year? Freddie, let's start by considering the year that Trump's had. I mentioned the impeachment just now. Other than this, has he had a good year? Uh, It's very hard to say. I think overall, yes, uh, it has been a good year. If you think back to the beginning of 2019, he just had the midterms. Uh, which would, would you know, he lost Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, and it was widely sort of portrayed as as a as a real drubbing for him. I'm not sure, quite sure, how much of a drubbing it really was historically, but it, there was a sort of feeling that that he was in trouble there. And then you still had the Mueller report, which there was a lot of excitement about, and this idea that he would sort of be exposed as a as a kind of Russian asset. That turned out to be a damp squib, to put it mildly, and he got a lot out of that. He got a little political capital, I think, about the fact that the Democrats had put so much effort into exposing him over Russia and his connections to Vladimir Putin, and it had come come to naught. And now, of course, you have Ukraine Gate. But as I've written, and as lots of other people have said, it looks like impeachment is helping him. Um, and in fact, it's perhaps the one thing the Democrats could do that can really help Trump in certain swing states. So it's sort of amazing that the Democrats have chosen to do this. Because when you look on other fronts, I mean, yes, the economy is going fine, uh, going very well, in fact. But Trump has not been a very successful president so far. I think that's fair fair to say. I mean, he's, he emphasises his own achievements a lot, mm. but they don't really amount to much. And they're more destructive as achievements than constructive, I think. Right. Rick, we'll, we'll get to impeachment in a bit later. Freddie just then said that the Mueller report was a damp squib. Do you agree? Yeah, well, the, the Mueller report did clear him, technically, of the Russiagate charge. But, of course, I never took it very serious. I never took the Russiagate charge seriously. I don't think that's what beat Hillary Clinton. Uh, but putting that aside, the, the, the Mueller report was full of good stuff that the Democrats could have used about uh, him abusing his position in, in office, which is what the uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were, were looking at, or were writing about when they wrote about impeachment. It was not to, to nail him on a specific violation of the law. It was to rein in somebody like Trump or somebody like Andrew Johnson, uh, the uh, Lincoln's vice president, who would just behave in a manner that wasn't really fitting for a president, a really in a bullying way. Johnson and Trump actually have that in in common, uh, that they bully people, they ignore counter arguments, they insult everybody, they try to push, they, they push people around 
without any respect to sort of conventional civic behavior. So the, the attempt to fire Mueller as special prosecutor, I think, was a stronger case for impeachment. And I wrote mm. that in The Spectator than this Ukraine gate. Because the Ukraine gate, all it does is exposed to some extent, it exposes Trump's behavior. Yes, he's trying to get uh, dirt on his political rival, uh, Biden. But he's also, uh, it, it brings Biden's corruption and, and Biden's conflicts of interest to light. So mm-hmm. it just reminds everybody uh, of the unseemly behavior on the other side by the Democrats. Hunter Biden, Biden's son, using his father's position to make money from a foreign government looks to a lot of people just as bad as Trump trying to get dirt on Biden. So I think that this is a weaker case against uh, against for impeachment against Trump. Well, somebody put it to me yesterday that the latest impeachment, the Ukraine gate, if you want to call it Ukraine gate impeachment, it's a bit like getting uh, Al Capone on a parking ticket. And I thought that was quite a funny way of putting it. But I, I just don't think it's actually apt because... I mean, yes, Trump, I'm sure, has done lots of terrible things, but really any president, you could probably find something they could be impeached over. You know, go back to Reagan and Iran-Contra. I mean, I think that this idea that to restore norms, you hear a lot of talk about norms, you know, that there are sort of important norms that a president must abide by for America to remain intact. And I think a lot of that is can't. And I think that previous presidents have clearly broken all these norms and not been impeached. And the, the problem now is that you'll have impeachment inflation. And it's hard to see now how any president in the future is not going to be impeached by the other side if they can, just because they want to get him out. One other thing is the emoluments clause in the Constitution is very specific about the president not profiting from his, his position as president. And the business of, of Vice President Pence staying, uh, paying to stay in a, a Trump resort 180 miles away from Dublin is a pretty flagrant violation of the emoluments clause. But there again, I think the Trump businesses have received more than $20 million from federal uh, uh, bookings or bookings by public employees since he became president. Now, that is prima facie violation of the Constitution. It's actually written into the Constitution. But there again, the Democrats don't use that. That's not one of the articles of impeachment. So it makes you wonder, and I think Freddie's got some, has a point, which is that the Democrats are not defending the Constitution per se, or the, uh, the balance of power. They're defending the Democratic Party. So Rick, for listeners who haven't been following impeachment closely, obviously this week the president has successfully been impeached. But for him to go, the Senate will need to convict him too. So what are the chances that Trump will actually be convicted or resign as a result of the pressure? Well, now I think it's almost zero because of, of the fact that they're only bringing these two uh, articles of impeachment. If they brought emoluments and they brought abuse of power for trying to fire uh, Mueller and that they'd put on a real good show, a real good trial in the Senate where they, they called Don McGahn the, the uh White House counsel, and they asked him, what's the crazy shit that Trump asked you to, to do when he, when, when he tried to get you to fire or tried to get you to persuade uh, Rosenstein at the Justice uh, Department to fire Mueller? It could have been a great show trial, which could have shifted Republican votes because it was so embarrassing. But now all they've got is the transcript of the Zelensky conversation, 
and a lot of people saying that he was trying to dig up dirt on Biden. It's not a strong case. It doesn't make for a very good trial. So I don't think he's going to be convicted. It's not going to fly in the Senate. Remember, they need remember they, they need two thirds. They don't just they don't need a majority. They need to shift a lot of Republican uh, Republican senators to conviction. It's just not going to happen. And also, I'd add, Rick, that the, the, doesn't it feel to you like the Democrats are almost giving up on the whole thing as as they get into it? I mean, they they seem to be setting up bribery. They started using the word bribery. They moved from saying quid pro quo to bribery. And it seemed like they were going to put bribery, which is the first, I think, offence listed as impeachable in the Constitution. And then they haven't gone with bribery. That's just sort of vanished. They they seem to have almost lost confidence. And it seems they're on different pages, I think. Pelosi seems to have been dragged into it a little bit. Is that is that am I reading? Absolutely. Correct? Absolutely. And the and the the weakest argument that this, that the Republicans have against impeachment is that this is an attempt to reverse the election results of 2016. Because, as you say, Pelosi had to be dragged, kicking and screaming into this. The Mueller report, again, and the, and the violation of the Emoluments Clause were so flagrant uh, in terms of abuse of power and specific violation of the Constitution. Uh, and, she, and she kept saying, no, 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 we don't want to impeach him. It'll backfire. Don't do it. Don't do it. And she fought off the, uh, let's say, the left wing of her party, which was demanding his impeachment. It's only when Biden, who is clearly corrupt, and, is, and Biden's son, are attacked by Trump, that she acts, which makes her look like a party hack, uh, which to some extent she is. <laughs> so it's a, you feel the air going out of the uh, impeachment argument before it even starts. Now, crazy things can happen in a trial, but the Republicans are going to stage manage it to, to, to an extent because they control the Senate uh, to make sure that nothing uh, accidental takes place. I think so that that would change any votes that would force any Republicans to vote for conviction. Now, Freddie, the reason that Trump is so interested in Hunter Biden is that Joe Biden is looking like the front runner in the Democratic race for the presidential nomination. That's one other big US story that's been happening this year. And thankfully, we haven't had to talk about Trump for all of our time. I mean, how do you think that race has been going? Well, but Joe Biden's popularity in the polls is extraordinary. And it actually, in some ways, it reminds me of Trump's in 2016, in that everybody assumes that it's going to collapse at some point, but it mm. just it, it just sort of keeps going, even though he is obviously a very, very flawed candidate. He's got a very, very long record in, in government with lots of possible corruptions, as well as things that really upset Democrats, you know, his involvement in credit card lobbying or something like that. that that's something that, that's a real weakness for him in terms of getting the dom- Democratic nomination. And yet he keeps he keeps just thriving in the polls. Mm. And this, in spite of the fact, I would add, that he seems to be, uh, without wanting to be intelligent, well, let's say Gaga. I think he's a bit Gaga. He can't really control his thoughts. In the debates, he seems to not really be sure of what he's saying. Is that an age thing? Yeah. I mean, I think he's been in politics for a long time. He's he's slightly younger than Bernie Sanders, but he's a bit less compassmentous. Rick, do any of the Democratic candidates stand out for you? Well, I've always thought Sanders was the strongest candidate because he's, he's the most consistent. And he's always been the one who manages to run outside the Democratic Party with his own fundraising mechanism. Uh, so he's not dependent on Party Central to fund his campaign or, or, or the, the, um, the, the patronage of any party leaders. 
which gives him a chance to really appeal directly to Democratic primary voters. But the party is very, very strong. People forget that there is a central committee at the Democratic Party, and they want Biden or they want uh, somebody like Biden who will follow orders and will make sure the trains run on time and uh, patronage jobs get a point, uh, get handed out and that money is directed to the right sort of candidates who will uh, uh, follow the party line. And there's a great deal of party discipline involved in this. And the, the media, to some extent, uh, and I'm talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, MSNBC, they go along for the ride. They think uh, they like they like they're very much aligned with the interests of the Democratic Party. So Biden benefits not only from being not Trump. That's his. That's all he's got going for him because he's such a stumble bum and he's so corrupt and has been for so long. But he's also got the official support of the uh, of the Democratic and the media establishment. So it's going to take a lot for Sanders to bring him down. It's almost almost impossible, but it's it's still possible, still possible. And it's interesting, isn't it, Rick? Because you hear a lot of talk, particularly about Trump and Ukraine or Trump and Russia, about how Trump is a mobster and, and he sort of he behaves like a like a member of the mafia and talks like a member of the mafia. But if you really want to see the way a kind of mob operation works, I think you'd probably be better better off looking at the Democratic Party machine. <laughs> yes, I think the Democratic Party machine. And this is, of course, you know, people still are making believe that Obama uh, was a, a free free agent who some, appeared from nowhere to become a candidate for president and was able to, de- to defeat Hillary Clinton because of his independent sort of stature and, 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 and morals. It's absurd. He was sponsored by the Chicago Democratic machine. He was married to the daughter of a precinct captain, uh, Michelle Obama. He was very wired into the, to uh, a local party elite party machine, which is very important in the in the party, the Illinois state machine and the Chicago machine. Then again, that's another one of Biden's great alleged advantages was that he served in the administration of Barack Obama. But Obama was as beholden to Wall Street, to Goldman Sachs, to, uh, you know, the, the to, to the traditional uh, foreign policy establishment in that uh, has ruled forever the foreign policies of democratic administrations. He was a very conventional guy, and that is the party machine telling him what to do. I'm not saying Obama didn't occasionally do something independent, like his deal with Iran was took real initiative and real work and went outside of the traditional party dictates. But for the most part, he was a a go-along-to-get-along president. And that's what the party wants. That's why they're so afraid of Sanders. That's why they want to crush him. I, I said so in, in Spectator USA. I mean, I think even Elizabeth Warren, who is a challenger on the left, is also very aligned with the traditional Democratic Party. And when push comes to shove, she will respect party protocol ahead of uh, her reformist left-wing instincts. 
And Freddie, from the British general election, you know, one of the explanations put forward for why Labour lost so much in in the election is that they were just too out of touch, you know, they were too metropolitan, too elite, too London, to really get the votes of um, Northerners in England. Do you think the Democrats are at risk from suffering from this sort of similar sort of out of touch liberalism in their candidate choices? Uh, Definitely, definitely. I mean, the the Democrats uh, are far, they're far more advanced in this identity politics stuff that um, I think Corbyn suffered because of. And I think almost you have this sort of transfusion between if you like the squad led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Corbyn and you know I think Corbyn when he said what his preferred pronouns were Ocasio-Cortez and joined in and you have this sort of very kind of woke conversation going across the Atlantic which leaves most voters miles behind and I think Corbyn fell into that trap or, or Corbyn's campaign did certainly and I think the Democrats are in great danger of doing that because most people just don't care about gender pronouns and they find it ridiculous and they care about things like immigration and jobs. And do you think one candidate like such as Joe Biden could be better at getting those sort of Rust Belt voters on side? Well, yeah, Biden's one of, one of the reasons that might explain Biden's success is even if he tries to be woke, he can't really do it because he's too uh, long in the tooth. And um, similarly, Bernie, I mean, Bernie does sort of say the right things, but it just sounds like he's just saying it because he has to. It, it doesn't feel like he really has mm. any woke instincts. I certainly hope Bernie has no woke instincts. I, it, you're right. It's, it's a pantomime when Bernie tries to look woke. Uh, but again, you're touching on something. I've resisted for a long time comparisons between the British situation and the American situation. But there are similarities in that the Democratic Party, which used to be, in effect, the Labour Party, it was never as left wing as, as the British Labour Party or as as interested in the working class. But there was a time in our history where the Democratic Party was more or less aligned with uh, the interests of labor unions and, and the working class. And But ever since Clinton put through NAFTA and the permanent normal trade relations with China, the Democratic working class, the people who used to vote for Obama, the Obamas automatically, have become disaffected, just like the northern and northeastern voters in England voting for uh, Johnson or voting, I'm sorry, voting conservative. And it's the great advantage Trump has, because we're, we're, we're discussing how he's doing at the end of the year, is his new NAFTA, which is not getting, an, uh, it's getting a little bit of attention, but his trade negotiator has negotiated a new agreement between Canada and Mexico, which is way to the left of anything the Democratic Party has proposed since NAFTA was passed, to reform NAFTA. Uh, now, I'm not saying it's going to stop the outflow of industrial jobs to Mexico and China, because ultimately, cheap labor is what uh, makes the difference. And NAFTA and PNTR, as I call it, are uh, investment agreements, which guarantee or protect American investments in Mexico and China. That being said, Trump is going to be able to campaign on a pro-labor anti-NAFTA platform next year, and the Democrats are going to be forced to vote up or down on his NAFTA reform plan. Now, the House will probably address it in the next couple of months. The Senate, I don't know whether McConnell, the majority leader, will let it go through, because it is very pro-labor. It's it's very much opposed uh, to traditional Republican business values. But Trump, just as a political tactical matter, is going to be able to campaign 
as a champion of the working class, a little bit like Boris Johnson. I will respect you in a way that labor doesn't respect you. They talk down to you. Trump will say, I don't talk down to you. And he's got a point. He's got a point. And another interesting point of comparison between Britain and America is what happens if Trump loses next year. I don't think mm. at the moment he will lose. But you might see a very similar dynamic to what's happening with the Labour Party now, because the interesting comparison in, in between British politics and American politics in the last few years has not been that Boris is like Trump. You know, there's a lot of talk about that, and there perhaps are some similarities. But it's more that Corbyn was very like Trump, and the Corbyn phenomenon was very like the Trump phenomenon. It's sort of both men took over a, a shell of a party, a, a sort of party that was dead, and managed to reconnect with a movement or even form their own movement. Uh, and so what happens when that insurgent, triumphant candidate then fails? Does the party go back to where it was before in the mm. 90s? Or does it go down the Trumpist route? In Corbynism, I think it's so far gone that it's going to be hard for, you know, we're not going to see a new Labour re revenge anytime soon. Ditto Trump. Uh, I don't think you're going to see a kind of Mitt Romney conservatism uh, re-emerging. On that, I mean, the Labour Party here, obviously, they, there's obvious Corbyn successors like Rebecca Long-Bailey. Um, I would have said Laura Pitcock, but obviously not anymore. Is, are there any people like that in the Republican Party who can do that Trumpism without Trump sort of thing? Well, an interesting figure is Marco Rubio, who, of course, failed in 2016. But he's tried to reposition himself and he's talking a lot about kind of social conservatism and using right. the state to 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 support social conservative socially conservative values which kind of shows that he's he's realized that the free market kind of extremism stuff doesn't really play anymore and that you have to move away from neoconservatism and into something a bit more traditional finally freddie you know what are the key moments to look for in 2020 will trump have another good deal or could he be out of the white house well i think the early primaries are going to be very interesting you'll have iowa you'll have new hampshire and I think after New Hampshire, you'll have a sense of what might happen mm -hmm. in the Democratic nomination race. And you'll see whether Biden is a real candidate, because the thinking is he's going to fall away pretty quickly. We'll see if that happens. And then, of course, on the 3rd of March, you'll have Super Tuesday, which is the big primary where you, you really will get a sense of who is going to be the nominee. Uh, and so I'd say that's the sort of that's the key moment to watch out for. 3rd mm -hmm. of March, Super Tuesday. Freddie and Rick, thanks very much. Do tune in again tomorrow when I speak to China expert Kerry Brown and Hong Kong journalist Isabella Steger about the protests in the city this year. And if you enjoy this podcast, why not check out Freddie's Americano podcast, where he keeps abreast of American politics. You might also enjoy Spectator US. It's the American edition of The Spectator and newly launched as a monthly magazine. Visit spectator.us forward slash holiday to find out more and subscribe. And you can even get a discount if you type in the code Americano.